was um, several years ago now, uh, Brooke and Amanda took um, their eldest daughters, Callie and Hannah, to a musical. They were both very young. The girls were both very young at this time, and they're both very nervous now because they don't know what I'm going to say. Um, this may have been their first theatrical experience. I don't remember. Um, probably was for Callie. But, but by intermission of this local production, the girls were very tired. Uh, Callie and Hannah were very tired too. Uh, yeah. But it, it was getting late. You know, these things tend to start late. And, and, and it, by intermission, again, it was already pretty late. The first act was longer than the second. And so when the curtain closed for intermission, Callie and Hannah thought it was over. And so they thought it was time to go. And Brooke and Amanda didn't bother correcting them. <laughs> so they just left <laughs> before Act 2. Uh, and so did you, I hope that I'm not breaking this to them, that they know that this is what happened. But, uh, but, but you think of what happens in a situation like that. There's no resolution of the plot that began to be developed in Act 1. I think it was Beauty and the Beast or something. So if you know that story or any story like that, you understand that intermission, there's these, all these dangling plot lines out there and no resolution, lots of loose ends. The girls didn't notice or didn't care, and I guess they weren't suspicious that nobody else was leaving either. Um, well, I, I was thinking about that as we come to, into Acts today. We've spent the last two years working our way through John's gospel account. And, and the curtain closed for us in John 21, the very last verse of John 21. So if you're in Acts 1, just look across the page or on the page before. Verse 25, we read these words and we looked at these. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now it almost sounds like when you read John 21, 25, that Jesus' story is over. His doing is done. Past tense. He did these things. It almost reads like a eulogy, like someone standing at a funeral and looking back over a, over a life that is now over. It's finished. Now, I'm not saying that that's what John is suggesting, but that's, that's kind of how we read it at face value. But the curtain in John 21 is not the final curtain for Jesus. The drama of redemption is not over. The, this is only the first act. And so when you turn the page or you look across the page, is is in my copy of the Scriptures, and you look at the very next verse in the Bible, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the curtain raises again on Jesus. Act 2. And so Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts, and he begins his account with these words that Thomas just read a moment ago. In the first book, and this was again Luke writing, so in his gospel account, that's the first book, O Theophilus, anybody's looking for a baby boy name, there you go. And you got a little gift today. But in, in this first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus, look, look what it says, began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So Luke's gospel account and the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, they, they wrote about those things that Jesus began to do, about act one of Jesus' work. And that, you know, the book of Acts picks up, and, and this is act two. This is what Jesus himself continued to do. And so we, we hear uh, the, the, the title of the book of Acts. And, and in my copy of the scripture, it says the Acts of the Apostles. Some have said it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Both of those obviously have merit, and, and I can understand that. 
But you could also rightly call this the, the, the acts of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying right there in verse 1. And so there's, there's this one redemptive drama that, that's unfolding in these two acts. There's one ministry of Jesus in, in these two stages, his, his earthly ministry that, and, and then his present heavenly ministry. And so this is, this is what we see. John Stott, he calls this book, The Continuing Words and Deeds of Jesus by His Spirit through His Apostles. Now that's a mouthful, so for shorthand we'll just call it Acts, or for the sake of this series, Act 2. Uh, but but this, is, this is Christ continuing to work. So we won't, we won't be working our way through all 28 chapters of Acts. I'm not going to jump right into another long series like that. We're only going to take five Sundays and work our way through the first two chapters of this book. Just, and all I want to do is I want us to see the curtain lift again. And I want us to see the continuation of Jesus' story so that we don't get the impression that there's this brokenness. I want you to see how the story continues into the early church and on, the, on into today. And, and so when John ended, there were, these, there were these dangling plot lines. Like, And if you left at intermission, you wouldn't see how they resolve. What about the exaltation of Jesus, the ascension of Christ? What, what about the spirit that Jesus kept talking about that would come? What about the church? What about this worldwide mission? None of that is, is seen in the gospel accounts. And, and, and beyond just the fulfillment in the early church, the story continues today. We spent the last two weeks... Uh, last couple Sundays as part of our annual World Missions Conference, just putting, putting this focus on what God is doing among the nations and even through this local church. And so we had sermons and songs and prayers and reports all just raising the flag of cross-cultural missions, God's gospel going out to the nations. And that was all connected this year to the 500th anniversary of the spark of the Protestant Reformation. And so is all of that connected and the answer is absolutely. That history is not made up of just these little random, isolated, standalone events, big and small, events and places and people. That's, that's not all history is. No, there's this one larger story that God is moving along. And we have to see that. And the book of Acts helps us see that. Now, I don't have time, and, and, and because we're not going to be in this series for long, I'm not going to give a, a, a full lengthy introduction on the book of Acts. I just want to make three quick statements, and I'll give very little explanation, uh, but I hope that these will kind of just get us oriented as we jump into this, the first couple chapters over the next few weeks. First thing I'd say is this, is Acts is history and theology. History and theology. On the one hand, it's historical narrative. It's, it's telling a story. It's rooted in eyewitness testimony, eyewitness narrative. But it's also deeply theological. It's, it's, it's history that's, that's uh, loaded with theology, theological history, or we could say prophetically interpreted history. So, all right, second, Acts is a bridge. It's a bridge. A bridge makes a connection between two points. And so Acts makes these critical connections for us. It connects, it connects the events of the gospel with the theology of the epistles. I mean, you just think for a moment about what we would know about the early church if, we, if all we had were the gospel accounts and the letters of the New Testament. There would be a lot we would not understand. 
And so it, it, it connects that for us. It also connects the events of the gospel to us. It, it explains, it tells to us how we got to be who we are and where we are. And the gospel's expansion. And so you get into Acts 16 and the Macedonian call. It explains how the gospel, why the gospel went to Europe instead of going to China. Paul was going east and the Spirit redirects him and sends him west. And so that, obviously that affects us. And so, so this is, it's a bridge. Third and finally, Acts is the greatest missionary story ever told. And you could say also it's the greatest missionary handbook ever written. And so when you think of Acts, think of mission. And I mean mission singular because it's not that there's, there are all these missions and we're just kind of going on these isolated efforts. No, there's one mission that God is, is, is accomplishing through his church. And so it's the gospel going out to the nations, Jew and Gentile. All right, with those introductory statements, I want to jump right into the text, Acts chapter 1. And, and, and I'm not going to attempt to cover every verse in these first two chapters over the next five weeks. Um, I just, I, I'm going to be focusing on a few verses each week. And so today our focus will be on verses 6 to 8. And really, just going to zero in tighter on verse 8 uh, this morning. But just to set it up, Acts 1 and the first five verses... Luke is summarizing Jesus' ministry to his disciples after the resurrection and before the ascension. And so he presents himself alive, he says. He appeared to them, and and over a period of 40 days, Jesus is teaching them uh, continuously about the kingdom of God and about the work of the Holy Spirit that's to come. And then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. So 10 days later, the Spirit will come at Pentecost, and so they're to, 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 to wait there, remain until he comes. Then, starting in verse 6, there's this interesting exchange between Jesus and his disciples, and this is where we're going to give our attention here. And it starts with a question from the disciples that sounds a little strange to us at first, perhaps. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, there are some commentators who just pounce on the disciples at this point because they seem to be so dense. And, and they jump all over their case because here they're asking about some earthly kingdom for Israel. But that's to miss the point. Jesus doesn't correct the idea that he's going to one day restore the kingdom to Israel. That's not his point. His correction has to do with their obsession over the timing of this. They're they're concerned about when it would happen. And then what does he do in verse 8? Then he redirects their focus to to the great need of the present age. And it's to bear witness of Christ to all the nations and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to be focused on now. But again, it begins with this question. And the question isn't from left field. I know to us maybe it sounds like that. But we know, I mean, we've seen in verses 1 to 5, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God and and about the, the outpouring of the Spirit. And if you know anything about Old Testament eschatology, eschatology is just study of last things, future things yet to be revealed, things to come. Any, if you know anything about Old Testament eschatology, you know that there's this connection between the, the outpouring of the Spirit and the kingdom. And so it's natural for them to equate the coming of the Spirit with the coming of the kingdom, with the restoration of Israel. 
So this is how they're thinking. And so the, the Messiah will, in fact, rule over Israel. There will be this future kingdom. And, and if the disciples were wrong on that point, this would surely be the, the balls teed up for Jesus to correct that one. And this is, this is, he would have set them right. But Jesus' correction isn't about the idea. Its correction is about their desire to know the timing of it. So Jesus is, he recalibrates their thinking. He he redirects their focus in verses 7 to 8. So verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Basically, basically what Jesus is saying with respect to timing, he says it's on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. It's not for you to know. Don't get worked up trying to figure out the times, the length, lengths of time, the durations and the seasons, those important critical moments and, and periods of time, movements of time. And so don't, don't, don't get worked up over that. God has fixed certain events and their timing. It's not for you to know. And then in verse 8, there's this, there's this adversity, but... But, so Jesus, they're, they're thinking timing, restoration of Israel, and Jesus with this little conjunction, he says, no, but, and he turns their focus onto something else. With, and he's redirecting their attention to what they do need to know and what they need to be doing. But right now, he says, in essence, God's purpose is to spread his gospel around the globe through the Spirit's power and your witness. That's what, that's what you're to be about. Is, is it just for us? This is there's, it's helpful for us. It, don't think that studying prophecy is a wasted time. Not oh, not at all. It's necessary. It's profitable to study the prophetic portions of Scripture. If you neglect those, you're neglecting a good chunk of the Bible. Let's see, if you just honestly look at the Scripture, there's so much that Scripture says about things that are yet to be fulfilled, promises yet to be fulfilled. And so there's nothing wrong with trying to fit what Scripture says about things to come into a con- consistent eschatology, consistent theology of, of those last things. That's not the problem. But there is a warning here. We shouldn't get so caught up in our views of prophecy and in our guessing of times and figuring out timetables that we neglect the clear mandate of the Great Commission. That's what the warning is. We have a job to do. to Take the gospel bear witness of Christ to our neighbors, to the nations. This is our, and this is where I want our focus to land for the next few minutes here. In verse 8, as Jesus redirects their attention, verse 8, Jesus says, But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I want to unpack that verse, but I want to do it in, in reverse order. So I'm going to take the second part first. First thing to say is this. Is that we are to be Christ agents in the ever-expanding spread of the gospel. That's first. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, contextually, certainly those, those words of Christ here are, are specifically aimed at those first apostles, the men that he's looking eyeball to eyeball with. And we see this throughout 
the, the, the story as it unfolds in the book of Acts, that this is exactly what they do along with the early church, that, that the gospel expands from Jerusalem to, to that known world. And so many have, have outlined the book of Acts, and I think this is a great way to outline Acts is with verse 8. And you see the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth through this book. But these, you also have to recognize that these words, this commission, it isn't solely for them, that the words that Jesus says here, they're really shoes that are too big for the apostles' feet alone. That, that, that This is not just their mission. Again, there aren't multiple missions. This is the mission. This is the one mission. This is the mission that began with them in Jerusalem, but it continues into the present day even with us. So just, just three statements real quick about this mission, about our mission. First, our mission is vocal. It's vocal. It's, I think they'll go up at the same time. It's vocal, it's global, and it's centrifugal. But first, it's, it's vocal. You will be my witnesses. What do witnesses do? Witnesses simply tell the truth. Jesus' witnesses tell the truth about him. You've, you've heard something You've seen something. Now the Spirit of God is going to come upon you so that you can tell something. That you can say what you've seen and, and heard about me. That's, that's the mission. Our mission in our context is not to reclaim America. It's not to uh, avoid contact with the world, to cloister ourselves until Christ returns and just kind of hang on. It's not to make Christianity popular by, through political posturing in the world. It's not to spread the gospel by means of, of coercion and manipulation. No, our, 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 our mission is simply to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. It's this vocal mission. It's a vocal mission. There's a message to proclaim. How vocal are you, brothers and sisters? Are you silent? Is your tongue Nodded, has it been active? Speaking of Christ. Secondly, and our mission isn't just vocal, but it's global. It's global. It's not just a local, regional task. It starts in Jerusalem. It started in Jerusalem, but the ends of the earth are what are in Jesus' sights. So Jesus just absolutely explodes the apostles' vision and ours of, of what he's doing and what his, his aim is. It's to the end of the earth. So, so again, thinking in our context, it's so easy to get small-minded and to, and, to, and to think so small about what the Lord is doing. And, and not to, we're not to neglect what he, what he wants to do right here in your home, in your family, in this community. But we have to think globally, brothers and sisters. What's God doing around the world? How is He at work? And, and, and where, where is the gospel expanding? And where do we need to direct resources? And how can we just position ourselves to support that advance of the gospel around the globe? We've got to know what the Lord is doing. Know where the church is being persecuted. Know, know what the opportunities that God, the doors that God has opened for us. And we need to be ready to go through them. We've got to think globally. And then, and then the third statement, our, our mission is centrifugal. Now, I know that's not a word we use often, but you, you, to centrifugal just simply means to move away from the center. You know about centrifugal force if you've ever ridden on a merry-go-round. 
And if you're a dad like me who thinks it's very fun to send your kids flying off a merry-go-round, you know, you get them spinning real fast and they can't let go. You know, I've heard of people like that. Um, but but this, the mission of the church is to go out to the nations. We go out. The, it's, it, it's, it's centrifugal as opposed to being centripetal, which means to move towards center. Jesus didn't say, invite the nations to come to Jerusalem. Just, just be ready in case the nations come to you. And he says, no. You start in Jerusalem and you go out. You move away from center. That's the heartbeat of God. It's a, he's a seeking, pursuing God. He's moving, he moves, he's moving out and He wants us to move out. Go to them. This is the heartbeat of God that has to pulsate even in this church. And so, so our posture shouldn't, shouldn't be just come and see, come check it out. No, our posture is let's go and tell. We gather for worship and we just scatter with Christ on our lips as we proclaim Him. That needs to be, that needs to be our, our M.O., we're not to be an, a, an attractional church. We're just trying to have all this cool stuff to get people here. No, we're to be, as, as this, the, the wording often used today, is a missional church. And all that means is our lives, as we've seen throughout John's gospel, our lives are to be characterized by the fact that we are sent ones. We're sent out. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So that's, that's to characterize everything we do. Everything, the way we think about life is the fact that my life is, is part of, is caught up in this mission that God is on. And it's a centrifugal mission. It's going away from center. It's going out. It's expanding. And so his mission is centrifugal. The disciples of Jesus just sent out to the farthest corners of the earth. And we don't just go to those pockets of people around the world who, who we can relate to who look like us, who think like us, who act like us. No, our witness, it must extend as we see towards those who might even seek to do us harm. He says, he said, he didn't say, you know, get out of Jerusalem and go to people who might be more receptive. I mean, you think the disciples were to be witnesses first in Jerusalem. This is the place where just days earlier, Jesus had been rejected and brutally, unjustly murdered at the hands of the authorities. He says, you, you be my witnesses right here in hostile territory. And our witness also must extend towards those that we've been taught to despise and who have been taught to despise us. They're, they're also to bear witness in Samaria. And if you know anything of the, the sociopolitical uh, aspects of this, that the, the Jews were taught to hate the Samaritans. They hated them. And then the feeling was mutual. And so, so but he says... Samaria, go, doesn't matter. Go with the gospel. And this should be the impulse of the church. It should always be to expand the gospel, to go, to go, to go. We go with the gospel that is the power of God to save for, the, for salvation of all who would believe. This is why as we, you know, we, we think of, of world missions and we're, we're talking about, um, we've been, having our missionaries and giving reports and what the Lord is doing around the world. This is, we've we got to keep our foot on the accelerator. We said this a couple weeks ago. Grace Promise is just a reminder. I'm just a little plug here. This is the vehicle we use for funding our, our support of world, of world missions and the missionaries that we're involved with. And so 
I urge you to, be, to, to take time to pray, to seek the Lord, to make plans, to, to make sacrifices, and to increase your commitment, involvement in, in, in giving to support world missions. And do this soon so we can begin putting a budget together of what it, what it will look like. How do we support the, the ongoing work? So just a reminder for you. But this is not just about us and our budget and our cards. This is, it, it ties in right here. This is the Lord's mission. He's continuing this work. The gospel's got to go, and we've got we to be engaged in it. And so the, the gospel's expansion has continued past Acts and on in today. This is, the, this is the nature of the New Testament mission. It's expanding. It's, it's, it's vocal. It's global it's centrifugal it's it 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 goes out and 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 we've seen that over the past two thousand years but the task brothers and sisters is not finished and so until christ returns the mission remains the charge remains we've got to we've got to keep speaking we've got to keep going around the world with the gospel and so the gospel we can say to us, the gospel came to us by this expansion. You saw that graphically displayed a moment ago. And so I would just say for you and me, is there a drive to see that keep going? Or does it terminate on us? Have we begun to make Christianity um, quiet and privatized and local and centripetal when it's intended to be vocal and global and centrifugal? There's a, a book that I've, I've quoted a few times in, in different settings, and it's called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. It's not, a, it's not a new book. It's been around for probably 15, 20 years by uh, John Miller. But he talks about this natural tendency that churches have and Christians have to become introverted and ingrown as time goes on rather than focused on the gospel's expansion. And this is kind of the... the if, if churches aren't careful, this is just kind of the rut that they fall in. And so he gives seven common characteristics of a, quote, ingrown church. And just one of those, he says, is, is a misdirected purpose. And I just thought it, would, it applied here as we're talking about this importance of having this mission in view for us. But he says this, the, the controlling purpose in the ingrown church has to do with survival, not with growth through the conversion of the lost. In the churchly club, the members are attempting to defend traditional group values in the face of, quote, outsiders who are perceived as likely to subvert their traditions. The danger is that eventually the church will make its own life programs and traditions into its object of worship. And I, I'm, not, it's not, I'm not saying this is, this is us or we're ahead. I'm just, I just say this is, a, this is a tendency that churches, I think, do have. And, and this is why for us it's so critical that we understand the task. We understand the mission. We're not, we're not creating the mission. We're not inventing the mission. No, this is the mission that we're just joining in that God is on. We saw that we've seen this throughout John's gospel. And, and again, it just shows up right here again in Acts. The story continues. Act 2. And now Act 2 differs from Act 1. And so here, here's the mission. And what a mission. What a task to see the gospel continue to spread across that map into every nation. And so how can we possibly do this? We can't on our own. Can't. But we're not left alone. We, last Sunday night, Pastor Dow took us to the, the, that 
the Great Commission is stated in Matthew's Gospel account, Matthew 28. And, and Jesus says, They're all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. It's been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you, what? Always, to the end of the age. Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. We're not alone. Christ promised to always be with us by means of and or through the Holy Spirit. And this is the second point that I want to see out of verse 8. Is that we must be empowered for this task by the Holy Spirit. We must be empowered for this task by the Holy Spirit. The disciples, they're ready to go, but they're not ready. <laughs> They, they may have been enthusiastic about this mission. They may have been well taught by Jesus about what they were to do. They may have had a plan. They may have been well rested and thought they, were, they had all the supplies of energy they needed to go. But they did not have the one thing or really the one person that they desperately needed. So Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem without the Holy Spirit. Don't even think of going on this mission without him. You know, we are seeing the trees come down along uh, the Highway 54, Georgia 54 uh, route over here, and they're about to start widening that, and and it will be many months, years process of getting that road um, constructed. There's a lot of excavation, a lot of earth moving that has to happen as part of that process, a lot of hills that need to be knocked down and excavated, a lot of holes that have to be filled in and to make a level roadbed. And But just to illustrate what's happening here in, in Acts, just think, imagine a, a, a road worker who, who's, who's ready to get to work. He's eager to get the job done and gets, get started, let's get this done. So a supervisor says, you know, we're going to get started next week. That's when, that's when all the equipment will be delivered. But this worker says, no, 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 no. We need to get started now. You know, why, why wait around a week? Let's, we, we, we're wasting time just sitting around idly. So he starts the earth-moving work with himself and a shovel. And so he gets out there with his shovel, maybe a wheelbarrow or a bucket or something like that. He works all day, every day, throughout that whole week that others were just, are just waiting around. He's basically, though, by the end of the week, he's done nothing other than wear his back out and his blistered hands and and there's, but then, then the semis roll in, just as the supervisor promised. And they come with these big, massive, earth-moving machines. And in five seconds of work, those machines have done more than that man did with his shovel all week long. And this is, this is what Jesus is saying. You don't have what it takes. You, 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 you wait. You don't have what you need, but you will soon. And then when you get it, Go. You just go. And so, the, so Jesus promises the Spirit. He's promised the Spirit throughout His ministry. Just think of what we've seen of this in the Gospel of John alone, let alone all the other Gospel accounts where there are recorded uh, promises of Christ. But just in John's Gospel, and this isn't even all of them. This is just a small sampling. John 14, verse 16. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. In verse 17, He dwells with you and will be in you. 
Again, in chapter 14, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The next chapter, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And then in chapter 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so, this is what Jesus is saying. You, the, the, the Spirit's going to come, then you'll be my witnesses. It's got to be in that order. And, and so the apostles in the early church, they saw this, these promises that, that Jesus spoke about in, in the upper room discourse and other places in his ministry. They, they saw them fulfilled and they, were, they lived in this sort of transitional period uh, associated with the, the birth of the church. So the Spirit came and the gospel spread. And as the gospel spread, the Spirit went. And, and so you see this through, throughout the development in, in the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. But we know in this age, and you get in the epistles and this is very clear, that the Spirit takes up permanent residency in the, in the heart of a person at the moment of conversion. And so the, the baptism of the Spirit that, that John the Baptist prophesied, that Jesus promises and re- references even and, and spoke to them about here in, in Acts 1, hey, this takes place for, for believers the, the moment they're born again. So there's no such thing as a believer in Jesus Christ who does not have the Holy Spirit. I know there are teachings out there, but that's just not consistent with Scripture. But, but those, those first apostles and and. Every believer since, what the context again is about this mission. Every believer needs the presence and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit if, to, if they're going to see any effect in being Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. So we need the supernatural, spirit-given power. It's essential for the spread of the gospel, not just across and around the nations, but it's essential across the table at Starbucks as you talk with a friend, a co-worker who doesn't know Christ. The Spirit's got to work, and we have Him. We don't have what it takes on our own. Just as we would have never believed in Christ apart from the work of Spirit in our own lives through the witness of someone else, we, our, our witness for Christ will be impotent without His Spirit's working. So just, just a couple, couple reminders, and some from the text and some are just general. First, the Spirit is a divine person, not an impersonal force. I'm not going to develop. We're not going to do a whole study on the theology of the Holy Spirit. But we're talking about the third person of the triune God here. This isn't, the Spirit isn't just some fuzzy force or feeling no he's a person spiritual being but a person second he's active and he's working as just some of this is not all but these are just some of the ways that particularly relate to us as we go out on mission he as we bear witness for christ the spirit he brings deep conviction to hearts first thessalonians 1 5 Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Spirit comes and brings deep conviction to hearts. He also, 
works to make us bold and courageous for Christ. In Acts, verse, Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the Word of God with boldness. Spirit works to make us courageous. He also sanctifies us and changes us so that as we're witnesses for Christ, we're, 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 we're vessels for the gospel that are pure and, 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 and growing and, and becoming more holy. And so he's active. He's, he's working always. And then that's the third statement. I would just say he's not to be taken for granted. He's not to be taken for granted. Now he's at work whether we're conscious of it or not. It's not like we can can limit him. We're going to talk, I'm not going to talk in length, but there's, there's warnings not to quench or to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's not that we have sovereignty where we can kind of suppress the Spirit. Oh, he can't do anything because we, we've got his hands tied behind it. No, he is sovereign. He is free. He can do whatever he wants. That's not the point. But, we, but he, So he's active and he's working, whether we're conscious of his work or not, whether we're resistant to it or not, but we should be consciously aware of our need for him. That's what you see in Scripture. We, we must walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. We must be continually filled with or controlled by the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. We need the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We, again, we must not quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. So, so, there, so even in, yes, we're all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. You've been baptized in the Spirit. But His ministry in our lives continues to go on and we need to be consciously reliant upon Him and aware of that work in our lives. Just, just in this, in, in, along these lines, uh, a 19th century preacher by the name of A.J. Gordon, who was named after Adoniram Judson, Adoniram Judson Gordon. He founded Gordon-Conwell Seminary. But he said this of the importance of the Spirit and as it relates to mission. So now, dear friends, all missionary success at home or abroad depends upon the Holy Spirit. I say it deliberately. The personal preparation of the Holy Spirit is the greatest need in our ministry in this country and in foreign fields. And that's, this is what I think this, that stands up to what Jesus is saying here. Uh, you, you wait. The Spirit will come and then you will be my witnesses. We cannot witness effectively for Christ apart from the Spirit. And we should not witness for Christ apart from, that, again, that conscience, conscious reliance upon Him. In Baraka, if, if this local church and other churches in our area, if we're going to really see the rapid advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and, and Clayton County and Fayette County and the surrounding areas, it's, it's going to be because the Spirit works mightily in us and through us. It's... it's we're needed. We need Him. His Spirit's presence, leading, empowering, they were absolutely necessary if the apostles were to be effective in continuing on the Lord's unfinished work. And we are just as dependent upon Him today. That's what I want to see. So this is, this is what we're seeing. We see in Acts the story of Jesus' work going on. It's not the work of Jesus done now. Now the Spirit takes over. No, it's, a, it's Christ continuing to work, continuing to do through the Holy Spirit by the apostles. The mission's continuing. He's building his church. He's calling his sheep. He's gathering worshipers from every nation and tribe and tongue. He's, he's working. The mission's being accomplished. It's being, but the task remains unfinished. 
So, but Acts is the story of what Jesus continues to do. Act 2. But there is a change. There's a scene change, a set change. And the hinge between Jesus' former earthly ministry and his present heavenly ministry is in verses 9 to 11 in our text. And I want to end with this. And it's, it's Jesus' ascension. His ascension into heaven. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He didn't just disappear or vanish uh, out of thin air. No, the Father sends this cloud as, it, as, it, as it's sort of this chariot for Jesus, and he, and he ushers him back to himself, and, and, and he returns to the Father. They needed to see this with their own eyes, because this is how the Lord will return. And so, so that's the picture here. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These angelic beings stood by the disciples and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you stargazing? This Jesus, the same Jesus that you just saw sin, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So when we think of, of God's redemptive plan, of the, the work of Christ in redemption, we often focus on the cross and the resurrection, and understandably, that's where I say Scripture focuses. But we, if we're not careful, we can inadvertently minimize or even neglect this critical doctrine of Christ's ascension. It's connected in this context here. It's vital for us and for our salvation that Jesus ascended. And so I, I, in the bulletin article, everybody pull out your bulletin real quick. I want us to look at that. Uh, it's not really an article so much as it's a copy and paste of, um, of another document. Uh, but in, in the bulletin article, I have an excerpt of, of, from the Heidelberg Catechism, and I have some explanation of what a catechism is, how it's used, and how it's been used throughout the history of the church and about the Heidelberg Catechism itself. This is, again, these are, these are man-made works, but they're attempts to systematize God's truth and make it in a memorable format so that, that the essentials of the Christian faith can be passed on in families and in churches. And, and so these have been used throughout the history of the church, again, to teach essential doctrine. But there, and there are several useful, both historical and contemporary catechisms, and some of you may use some of these within your own family. But I, I appreciate the warm tone of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, so it goes back to the 16th century. But just as an example, how, how does it begin? It begins with this question. This is the first question in the catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? It, it meets us right where most of us are at. Now, this is the, the old saying is we're all, every, I can stand before you and preach before you. I can guarantee if you're a believer that, that you are a saint, you are a sinner, and you are a sufferer. Every one of us is suffering in some way. And so the, the catechism begins with this. What's your only comfort? Life and in death. And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but I belong with both, with both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. 
So that's how it begins. And so it's got me at that point. I mean, so it's just good. And so it just works through and kind of unfolding Christian doctrine. So we're not able to speak about the ascension at length today. I included this, uh, these questions to just kind of show how the essential truths of the ascension of Jesus Christ have been boiled down in this particular catechism. And so, but I, just for the sake of practice, I want to I read question 46, and then I want us to answer together. We won't read all the, quote all the scripture references there, but you see front page, first question. It's, the catechism is arranged in 52 Lord's Days, and so one, one a week, one section a week. But question 46, and the question is this. What do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven together? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so... And you could go on and you could see, again, they're, they're arranged and just this is kind of the next question we would ask and then an answer is given. It doesn't say everything, but it says a lot. And so what I want us to see is that our ability to carry out the Lord's mandate, to, make, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, it depends on the fact that Christ is exalted at the right hand of God. Just why, why? Why is the ascension necessary as we go out on mission? It's just five, I think I have five statements here. One, we need to know that the one who commissions us indeed has all authority in heaven and earth, as Jesus claimed. That, that, that the, that, so that we can know that the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief and who was born into this lowly manger is in fact King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you think the disciples had any doubt when they saw the cloud descend and raise Christ from the earth and the two angels standing there testifying to what was happening? No, he is king of kings. He is, he is not just the, uh, a man who suffered at the hands of wicked men. No, he is God. And so this, is, this gives us assurance as we go out. The one who said, all authority on, on heaven and earth belongs to me. Now go. And that, that I am with you always. Okay, well, that's the, he's the one who's with me. So that's, that's one thing that helps us as we go out on mission. Christ, he's king. Secondly, it's necessary because we need Jesus' intercessory, his ministry of intercessory prayer. We need it. We suffer perse- when we suffer persecution for the gospel's sake, as we go out as his witnesses, we, we need the assurance that he cares for us, that he's praying for us, for the Father. Third, I'm not going to be able to elaborate much on these. We, we, the ascension is necessary because, as we've already mentioned today, we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We've already dealt with this, but we're powerless without him. The gospel, but the gospel is unhindered with him. So we need the spirit, and the spirit, Christ had to go for the spirit to come. Fourth, because we need union and communion with God through Christ. We who live as strangers in a, in a, in a hostile world, this is not our home if you're in Christ, but but we have this confidence that we are right now, as it were, seated with Christ in the heavenly places because he's been exalted. I need to know that as I, as I live, as I bear witness for Christ. And then fifth and finally, ascension is necessary as we think of our mission. It's necessary for the ultimate vindication of Christ and his death. This is what I mean. 
it means, this ascension means that Jesus' sacrifice for sin, once and for all, it has been accepted by the Father. You see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, that, that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and then the text says, he, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done, it's accepted. So what does that mean for us as we go out bearing witness of Jesus Christ? It means that as, as we go out to this world, we can confidently, without hesitation, without balking, proclaim forgiveness of sins in His name to everyone who believes in Him. We have this assurance because Christ is crucified, risen, and ascended to the Father that sin has been dealt with. And that if you put your trust in Christ, your sins can be forgiven. That's true for you today. If you've not trusted in Christ, if you're still carrying this burden of sin and, and, you're, and you're separated from God because of your sin, in which everybody is born in that condition, you can be, you can, you can be set free from that today, from, from the penalty and the curse of your sin, and by trusting in Jesus Christ today. You can stop right now and pray, and I'll talk to the, to the rest of the folks, and you bow your head right now and say, I'm a sinner, Lord. I need your forgiveness. I, I know there's nothing and I can do that can earn it, but I know that Christ has paid the penalty. There's death and his resurrection. I trust him alone. And you can be set free. And you can be assured of that because Christ has ascended and the sacrifice was accepted. And so what does it do for us? We're going to sing this in just a moment. So the ascension guarantees for us that the song we're going to sing, the cross has the final word. It's done. Let me pray and then we'll sing that together. Father, I, I, I pray that you would help us as a church, Father, to both understand the task and the gravity of the task that you've given us to be vocal, global, centrifugal witnesses of Jesus Christ, but to not be cowered by that, but to be buoyed by the thought that we have every resource we need. You've given us your Holy Spirit and and and. You've given us the power to be effective in that work for your name's sake. So send us out, Lord. Help us not ever to become content to kind of be in retreat mode, to be defensive, guarded, but to be always going, always expanding for, for the sake of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.